Welcome back to The Boy Who Harnessed the Wind by William Kamkwamba and Brian Miller. We're going to continue reading Chapter 14, The World Discovers Wimby. The day after the Daily Times article ran, a Malawian in Lilongwe named Soyapi Moonbaub brought the article to his office. Soyapi worked as a software engineer and coder at the Boabab Health Partnership, an American charity organization that was working to computerize Malawi's healthcare system. One of Soyapi's colleagues, a tall American named Mike McKay, liked the article about my windmill so much that he wrote about me on his blog, Hacktivit. The blog entry caught the attention of Emike Okafor, a famous Nigerian author and blogger who is also the program director of something called the TED Global Conference. Well, Emike wanted me to apply to be an official fellow at this conference and for three weeks tried very hard to find me. After harassing the reporters at the paper every day, he finally tracked down Dr. Machazni. In mid-December 2006, Dr. Chasmi came to my home with the application and paperwork for TED. We sat down under the mango tree and he helped me answer a list of questions, plus write a small essay about my life. When he left, I still had no idea what TED was. Though I do now, it means technology, entertainment, and design. And it's an annual meeting where scientists and innovators get together and share their big ideas. I wasn't entirely sure what a conference was or what people did at such things. The application didn't even say where it was held. I suspected Lilongwe, the capital, but I didn't know. I imagined myself walking those busy streets and seeing all sorts of new people. I wondered what clothes I would need to wear since everything I owned hung from a rope in my bedroom and was covered in red roof dust. Even still, it gave me something to dream about. The following week, Dr. Machisme called to say that Ted had chosen me. The conference would be held in Arusha, Tanzania, an entirely different country. You'll be honored with other scientists and inventors, he said. People from all over the world will be there. Perhaps something good can come from it. Wow, Arusha, how long would that bus ride take? And what if I got hungry? I'd have to bring plenty of food, perhaps cakes and roasted maize. After all, I had no money. One important thing, he said, we should book your flight before it fills up. I'm traveling by plane? My God. Yes, and they wish to know if you want a smoking or non-smoking room in the hotel. I'm staying at a hotel? I thought for sure I'd be sleeping in one of those guest houses near the boozing dens where poor people stay. Of course you're staying in a hotel, he said. And I have other good news. William, you're going back to school. After visiting my house with the reporters, Dr. Machisme approached the government about accepting me into a school. He'd even taken a collection among his colleagues to help pay for my first semester. The process had taken months. Finally, the Ministry of Education had granted me permission to attend Madisi Secondary, 
a public boarding school an hour from my home. It wasn't one of the science-based schools I'd long to attend. The headmasters at those places weren't willing to accept me on account of my old age and number of years I'd been a dropout. However, the headmaster at Medici, Mr. Ronick Spanda, was so moved by my story that he offered to spend the extra time with me helping me catch up. I was terribly behind. While Dr. Machismi planned my trip to Arusha, I packed my things and went to school. This was the first time I'd ever lived away from home. In my suitcase, I packed a toothbrush and toothpaste, flip-flops, a blanket, and all my dirt-streaked clothes. I carried it out through the courtyard and stopped under the mango tree where Jeffrey and my parents were waiting. I guess I'll see you soon, I told them. Work hard, my father said. I want you to know we're we're very proud. Jeffrey strapped my suitcase to his bicycle and we rolled it toward the truck stop. Along the way, I said goodbye to Gilbert. We don't have phones, so how will we talk, he asked. It will be difficult, I said. Maybe I can come visit you there. Oh, Gilbert, that would be great. Please do. I'll miss you, my friend. For sure. A pickup soon appeared in a cloud of dust. Jeffrey waved his hand and flagged down the driver. I'll see you when school ends, he said. When, When you arrive, find someone with a phone and send me their number. We'll talk this way, and I'll make sure Gilbert is there. That would be good, I said. Take care of my windmill, will you? Let me know everything that happens. Sure, sure, don't worry. I climbed aboard with the other passengers, found a sack of charcoal for a seat, and we rolled toward Kasunga. Once there, I caught a minibus down the M1 highway to the small town of Matisi. The minibus dropped me at a junction on the outskirts of town where a long road led to the school. I walked a kilometer with my suitcase bouncing behind on the gravel road until I stood outside the gates. In a matter of minutes, I had a dorm room and dorm mates, meal times, and a rigorous schedule of classes. Everything was new and foreign and a little overwhelming, but my God, what a pleasure it was to be learning in a real school. The classrooms of Medici had solid roofs that didn't leak and smooth, unblemished concrete floors. Large windows let in the sunshine, but kept out the cold. I had an actual desk of my own, complete with a pencil holder. During study sessions at night, Real fluorescent lights buzzed overhead, or at least they did when there wasn't a blackout. Science class was held in an actual chemistry lab where the shelves were lined with microscopes, giant coils of high resistant wire, glass speakers, and old jars of boric acid. If you can believe it, one of the first lessons in science class was how current passes through an electric bell. I had already applied this concept with my windmill and circuit breaker, but having it explained in scientific terms and in English was like hearing it for the first time. But like every other school in Malawi, Medici relied on on the government to survive. I 
unlike some of the more prestigious boarding schools, it had been forgotten. Most of the equipment in the science lab was old and no longer worked. The chemicals had expired and were dangerous. The microscopes were rusted and scratched. For the electric bell lecture, we had no batteries to supply the power. If anyone has an extra one in their rooms, I'm happy to demonstrate, the teacher said. No one did, so we used our imaginations. Our dorms were also dirty and the walls were covered with graffiti. The urinals in the bathroom didn't work, so the new students, namely me, had to clean them every day to keep down the smell. The rooms themselves were so cramped that we each had to share our bed with another boy. My bedmate was a guy named Kennedy who never cleaned his socks. Oh man, you need to wash your feet before you come to bed with me, I told him. Sorry, I can't ever tell, he said. I'll wash tomorrow, promise. But he never did. Often I'd wake up with his feet touching my mouth. And because I was years older than everyone else, some of the students teased me. They shouted, how many kids did you leave behind at the farm, old man? Two boys, I said, and one more on the way, perhaps next month. <laughs> he thinks he's funny, they said. He's spending too much time with his cows. One day I decided to end the teasing once and for all. I pulled out the newspaper article about my windmill and slapped it down on the table. Here, I said, this is what I was doing. My dorm mates were impressed. Good job, man, they said. No one teased me after that. Honestly, it really didn't bother me because after five years of being a dropout, I was grateful to be in school. However, I did become homesick, and whenever that happened, I'd hide away in the school library where the books filled the rows and rows of shelves. I'd find a chair and study my lesson books in geography, social studies, biology, and math. I'd lose myself in American African history. And within the colorful maps of the world, no matter how foreign and lonely the world was inside, the books always reminded me of home, sitting under the mango tree. While I attended school at Medici, Dr. Machismi was busy making arrangements for Arusha. He helped me get a passport and even took a collection for a new white shirt and black trousers. They were the nicest clothes I'd ever owned. He also gave me a useful travel advice. For instance, on a plane, I'd be assigned a seat that was mine and mine only. There was no need to rush and use your elbows like people did on Malawian buses. Also, if the red light was on near the bathroom, that meant it was occupied. And because some passengers become nauseous on their first plane ride, each seat came with a paper bag for vomit. This was good information because I was, was certain that I would need it. In June, I left school and came home to pack. The next morning, a driver appeared to take me to the airport in Lilongwe. Our son is leaving us and traveling by airplane, my father told my mother, smiling. That's right, I said, flying like a bird in the sky. I'll be waving as I pass over. We'll be watching for, for you. You'll see us here. My father then tucked a bag of roasted peanuts in my pocket. They were still warm. That evening, I was so nervous. I stayed awake in my hotel room 
watching soccer on Super Sport 3 until the sun came up and it was time to leave. On the plane, I couldn't believe it, I was, but sitting next to me was none other than Soyapi Mumba, the software engineer from Lilongwe, who had first seen my article. Because he's a nice guy, he introduced himself not knowing who I was. When I told him my name and where I was going, he replied, Oh my God, William, the windmill guy. He explained how excited he was to show the story to Mike McKay, who blogged about me on Hack TV. So Yappy was the very reason anybody had ever heard about me. And now here he was, sitting next to me on the plane. It also happened that Soyapi was a Ted fellow himself, being honored for his coding work with Boabab. I was so fortunate to find him. As the plane taxi taxied toward the runway, I began to notice the others seated around me. They looked so well-dressed and confident like they had important things to do, and their busy lives required them to travel in jets across the world. As the plane accelerated and lifted its nose in the air, I pressed my head back against the seat and laughed. I was now one of them too.